right. Thanks, guys. Good morning. Welcome to our church. My name is Chris Wachter, and, and uh, we are um, glad you guys are with us today. If it's your first Sunday especially, uh, thanks for being here. Uh, Peter Carlson uh, mentioned this as well uh, this morning, but we're starting a series right now that will take us about 14 weeks or so to get through on the book of Zechariah. And I say 14 kind of softly because it could be a little bit more or a little bit less, uh, depends on how things kind of progress throughout the, um, the, uh, the series. But if you're new to our church, we, uh, we, we value preaching here, we value the Bible. We don't take ourselves that seriously, but we take this book really, really seriously. And uh, part of the ways that gets expressed here in our uh, church culture and the way we do things on Sundays and throughout the week is that we, we value preaching and value talking about uh, God's grace and his character and the gospel through a variety of biblical lenses. Uh, if you weren't aware, this book is made up of a variety of genres, and so there's uh, different ways of talking about God. Uh, God actually reveals himself differently through history and narrative and poetry and prophecy and ultimately in the, in the form of a person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was his son, uh, made flesh, and we'll talk about him uh, explicitly a little bit later on. Uh, Zechariah, uh, I'm going to mention this now because I don't think it comes up a little bit as much later in the series, uh, though um, you'll uh, probably glean this a little bit here and there, is uh, he was just a guy. Uh, he was a sinner uh, who was saved by grace and who was called into a ministry by grace. And that's uh, an important thing just to kind of base, I think, our, um, our study off of. There's actually even greater things, which we'll do, but um, to base our study off of uh, as human beings who are like him. Uh, some of us have ministries, some of us have successes in business and, and in life, and we have comforts, we have uh, things that we can kind of look to our credit on and throw on our resume. Uh, but I think uh, what Zechariah tells us by being a prophet, one of these written prophets who write these things down, we'll talk more about this in a second, but is that everything we have is by grace. I mean, every ministry we have, every, every form of success, uh, everything that's happened to you guys that's been good is from God in, in your life. And that, that's a humbling thing, but I think a joyous reality at the same time. Uh, especially we can affirm this as Christians. If you're a Christian in the room, it's still humbling to hear that. Uh, but like Zechariah, he had a profound ministry. And uh, I'm excited to look at this book with you guys. It's one of my favorite uh, m minor prophets, I'll define that term in a second, but minor prophets of the, uh, of the Old Testament. It's the second to last book of the Old Testament, actually. So uh, if you're not sure where it is, it's uh, pretty much right before Matthew, uh, which is the first book of the New Testament. So kind of right in the middle, toward, leaning towards the, the back end, uh, a few pages before Matthew. If you want to open a Bible, that'd be great. Your devices, a uh, few Bible, I forgot to write the page number down, but um, again, a little before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if, that's, uh, if that helps you to find it. But uh, Go ahead and turn there. We'll be in the first six, six verses here today. Basically an introduction sermon today to kind of whet your appetite a bit for the book and to reorient you for some of you and for some of you for the first time on how to read the prophets. And then we'll uh, spend some time looking at the first six verses here uh, as well, which focus on this theme, this, this promise actually God gives of I will return to you. It's a plea return to me, but then a promise of I will return to you, which is actually the better half of that statement. I'll, we'll look at that later. Uh, so first, a little bit more on who was Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah was one of what we call the written prophets of, of the Old Testament, meaning one of the prophets who wrote down his oracles, the things that God told him to say, uh, which God then intended to become part of the Bible. So there are a lot of prophets in the Bible that we read narratively, sometimes just by name. It says that these prophets were prophesying and so forth, so they're unnamed prophets. But there are many, there are a few actually, uh, that God commissioned to not just speak, but to write down what they said. Write down their visions, write down their prophecies, write down these encouragements and proclamations to Israel so that they might become a part of the Bible and uh, part of the biblical story, really. So it's a particular form of prophecy that helps to tell the greater biblical story. So remember, this is a story. It's not just a list of random precepts and laws and individuals and events and psalms. Uh, it's a collection of those things that help tell one greater story arc, a story arc about God saving us from our sins. And so this comes before that. This is about 500 plus years before Christ, around 520 B.C. Uh, it was uh, written by Zechariah, who lived in Judah, uh, which was a province uh, right around Jerusalem, uh, again in the 6th century B.C. Around the time, this is the, kind of the context, and Peter mentioned this, but that many Israelites or Judeans were returning from captivity in Babylon. So as they're returning, kind of on the heels of that return, Zechariah is prophesying. He's speaking from God about that return and in connection with that return, about it, but about the future as well. 
And so he's going to use the, the return idea, coming back to, to the land, as a platform to talking about returning to God. And I'll come up today and, and throughout the series, but consider that a, um, an interpretive help. If you're new to this book or the genre, uh, that uh, he's talking about return to the land, but ultimately returning to the, to the Lord. Uh, in fact, a little bit of a big picture here on biblical history, if you're uh, new to the Bible, and I'll, I'll mention this so you know kind of where uh, the prophet's uh, ministry sort of falls, and especially Zechariah's, is God creates in the beginning, humankind falls away, God promises to save and redeem the world, uh, he covenants, in the me- that's ultimately a promise of Christ, but in the meantime, he covenants relationally with Israel, he gives them the law, which was not kept, and Israel is thusly exiled uh, from God, and this land of promise he gave them due to sin and failure to keep that law. But, but on the heels of that, God graciously returns Israel uh, to the land. And then after that, Christ comes uh, and the New Testament is established and the church is born. So Zechariah then is prophesying uh, really at the end of the, the Old Testament biblical history kind of timeline. So uh, in this section right here in yellow, as Israel's returning by grace, not because they all of a sudden kept the law, they were all of a sudden great, and God says, now you can come back. But in spite of their sin, as they were still breaking it, he says, come back. There's a huge tension there that we have to resolve. And we'll do some of that today and throughout this series. But God graciously returns Israel to this land of promise, which is to say to himself. And then on the uh, back end of that, really a few pages after that in our Bibles is, is the account of Christ's birth in his ministry, in his death and resurrection, and through that, the, the establishment of the church. So here's a map then uh, to get your geographical bearings. Uh, Jerusalem's right here. This is the province of Judah. You can see on this brown line kind of serves as to depict uh, when the Israelites were exiled, they left Israel up this way and then down this more fertile area rather than across the desert uh, to this Bab- Babylon's right here. And this whole green shaded area, it it shows the Babylonian Empire, which was the largest empire, uh, basically, of that day. Um, and so uh, they control this area anyway. So when Israel's coming back then, they're coming back from Babylon here, um, down back to Jerusalem here, uh, to really what's basically a shambles of a city and a temple at that point, but that's uh, for another sermon and day. So a lot of this book's theology then pulls from these themes and, and directs them to themes of God's grace in the present and the future, as he continues to work and build the story towards his son, Jesus Christ. So as people are returning from Babylon to really God, who symbolically resides here, uh, he's saying, return to me. As you're coming back geographically, come back spiritually. Come back with repentance. Come back with belief. In spite of your sin, in spite of yourselves, in spite of the past, this is the future I have for you. That's the gospel uh, that is in Zechariah, and it look ahead, looks ahead to Christ who fulfills the idea. So, so a few words on how to read Zechariah. Uh, in a word, I would encourage you to read it with a very wide-angled uh, Jesus lens. I say lens here, but I'll say Jesus lens. Uh, in other words, do not get lost in the trees. Uh, ask questions like, what does God reveal to us about his character in this book? What do you learn about the seriousness of sin How are Israel's experiences with God a microcosm of the world's? And ultimately, the best of these questions is, how does this book point us ahead 500 years from that vantage point in history uh, to Jesus Christ and his ministry and his death and resurrection, which is the climax of the whole Bible? Zechariah is, uh, some of you might be aware of this, but it's one of the most quoted books in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. The early church was just in love with this book and how they, uh, in God through them, but made these connections with some of these direct prophecies about Christ. And um, it's even quoted multiple times in reference to his specific death. Things like predicting his side, would be, his side would be pierced by a spear. That's in Zechariah. Things like uh, a Judas getting 30 pieces of silver when he betrayed Jesus. Uh, that was predicted 500 years before it even happened in Zechariah. And a whole slew of things like this, which is, now, one of those things that we, I mean, the, the date of the book is, is not really debated, secular or uh, Christian historian. Uh, this, is, this predates Christ by hundreds of years, and to see these prophecies with these direct fulfillments, it's authenticating. God is, God is not only saying that I'm the author of this story and it's perfectly woven together and my prophecies always come to pass, but he's saying that 
Specifically, I have a plan for Christ's death. I am predicting at 500 years through Zechariah, and it's before this too, but 500 years before he comes, I'm telling you that salvation has to do with my son's death. So he's really, really clear and just painfully, but in a good way, uh, consistent with how much he's predicting and prophesying Jesus Christ, but not his birth specifically, uh, though that's a part of it, his, uh, his special death, which atones for our sins. So, so a lot of uh, direct arrow-pointing prophecies, which we'll see uh, in, in this book, but also the early church apostles and fathers also saw, and we have a lot of their writings, and so I'm, I'm referencing them because of that, but they saw how many of the symbols in the book indirectly pointed to Christ in his church as well, using other parts of the Bible to help interpret this one. It's a very difficult book to read. It's, all the prophets are. So a lot of what the early church did is they said, well, where is it more clear? Where does the same theme come up elsewhere? And maybe it's more clear there, so we can use that part to read this part. And so one example is in Zechariah, we see a picture of lampstands. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which is a similar genre, it's apocalyptic and, and prophetic in some ways, it says, lampstands are churches. And so we have that help. We can read that into Zechariah and say what, what Zechariah is seeing when he sees a lampstand is he's seeing a picture of the church ahead of time, the people of God generally, and specifically the church that Christ will purchase with his blood and create uh, through his death and resurrection. So, so we have that as well. Uh, also here in number three, we have to remember that not everything, this is still an Old Testament book, so not everything is a one-to-one -one correlation with Israel and us. Not everything is a correlation with how God covenanted on a one-to-one -one level, how God covenanted with them and how God covenants with us now. Uh, this is Old Testament literature, and it points us to Jesus, but also contains a covenant, an Old Testament or covenant that would later be surpassed by Jesus Christ and replaced. There are differences. Now, wisdom says uh, which is a difference and which is a similarity. That's the hard work of interpretation. Uh, but there are differences. So in that way, then, the differences can make us yearn for the better way of Christ. And I'm going to try to give us an example of that today, a little bit later on, but we'll see that uh, weave through uh, the series these next 14 weeks together. But the question will be, how is this covenant different than the one I'm under now as a Christian? How is it better? How the first one set the stage for this one by not being as great of a version uh, of of a, uh, of a covenant with the Lord. How's this one more about God than about us? And then fourth here uh, is this fading shadow aspect of prophecy. Uh, basically what I mean by this is, remember that Zechariah is a return prophet, so prophesying during this return. And so this means that Israel has just come back from captivity in Babylon, so a lot of his content has to do with that. It celebrates the return, but it also looks ahead to an even greater one at the same time. If you get that, you'll get a lot, I think, in the book. He's celebrating the fact that God has graciously brought people back to the land. But it's also saying, even after the return, God's saying, return to me. So we could say, but didn't we just return, God? Aren't we back after 70 years? Didn't you bring us back? Why are you still talking about return? And the answer is because what's a better return than geographical is a return to the Lord. So there is a better kind of return. And that return is kind of happening here. And God's calling people to that, to repentance, and to coming back spiritually to God, to belief. But it's also a look ahead to Jesus, who makes that return ultimately possible. And so what, uh, what I mean by then fading shadow principle is the prophets then, what they'll do is interpret Israel's experiences, like so in this case return, in light of the new thing God's going to do through his son. So um, I have a chart here to kind of explain this. This is a Rough summary, there's so many more things we could put here, but um, what happens, and the prophets serve this kind of uh, middle ground ministry between Old Testament history and Christ. They're at the very end of the Old Testament. So what the prophets will do is they'll use this kind of language uh, to talk about Christ. So, they'll talk, so what happened in the Bible is God created everything. The prophets say, a new creation's coming, and what they're looking ahead to is Christ. The exodus occurs when, when Israel is, is freed from slavery in Egypt, and the prophets talk in Exodus language about the future. They say, a new exodus is coming. What they mean is, is Christ. The Old Testament is full of law and temple language, and the prophets say, a new kind of law is coming, one that will be written on your hearts that will be by, by faith and 
and grace. It will be by the Spirit, uh, not by the old written code and, and temple stuff. And Christ fulfills that too. And David, a new David's coming. And then we get to the bottom here, and this return idea is significant with the return prophets especially. Israel returned to the land, right, geographically. The prophets say a new return to God is coming. And the fulfillment of that is, is Christ. If you understand this, you will be able to read the prophets with a little more success maybe than you otherwise would. <laughs> It'll still be difficult. Uh, but if you know that they're, they're using the language uh, from Israel's history to interpret the future, you'll be able to decipher it a little bit better. So, and actually this is a call to understand the Old Testament more. If we don't know these stories, the prophets speak with this language. So we'll have no idea what they're talking about. Right, so the way to understand the prophets is to understand the Old Testament and then to understand Christ because they're in the middle. They're saying these kind of things are going to happen a second time in a bigger way, in a spiritual way, and Christ is going to be that, um, that end game to, to that kind of prophecy. So if that's over your head, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll talk more about this and give examples as we go. But just, in a, just to whet your appetite a bit and to, and to give a, a bit of a word on how to read Zechariah and all the prophets, uh, this will be a help, as uh, hopefully you guys can trudge through the book this week uh, if you haven't already before we preach any more on it. So. so with that said, let's dive right in. Zechariah 1, 1 to 6, uh, first six verses, which again will serve as an introduction to a lot of the themes of the book, especially return. Let's read in verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, who by the way is the king of Babylon at that time, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. All right, so two big themes today I want to look at is uh, this idea of a gracious invitation or a plea to return to God, and then second, an anticipation of something better. So it's kind of a plea and a promise. Think about it in those two ways. A plea to come back, God saying this, not just Zechariah, God through Zechariah as a prophet proclaiming truth and speaking for God, but then a promise of, I will return to you. Come to me, and, but the better thing, uh, and I will I will return and, and come to you. That's the better thing. We'll get to that. So first, a, a gracious invitation to return. But before we get there, though, let's look at, again, the first uh, couple verses here, really, uh, verses 2 and part of 3, which is really just kind of a walkthrough of what the whole Bible's saying, in a way. Uh, is, Israel is, I think John Piper said about Israel, that Israel is like the historical conscience of the, the theater of the world. I probably butchered that, but it's something like that. Uh, it, in which is, it, they're, 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 um, they're a reference to the human experience. They point, they are like a microcosm of, of our experience before God as sinners and as people who are saved. And so when you look at them, we should see ourselves uh, in them. Not always in the same covenant that they have with God, we'll come to that later, but, but see ourselves uh, in, in them. And that's actually what God is doing here for this, this generation of Israelites. He's saying, remember your grandparents? how they sinned. That's how you guys got here in the first place. This is 70 years after the exile proper occurred. And so even here, God is saying, remember other people who sinned? Kind of see yourselves in them. Uh, don't be like them and, and things like that. So it's an example in that regard, uh, but also a picture of all of our experiences. And so we start here with the fall, really. Sin angers, sin angers God. It actually says the Lord in verse 2 was not just angry, he was very angry with your fathers. So he, he's saying, before their grandparents were exiled, looking back 70 years again, God was, was very angry. Why? They sinned. They worshipped other gods. They harmed the helpless. 
They declared independence from him and became their own deities. They committed idolatry with all the human race with them. So it's not like it's just Israel. Everyone's doing this. We, we do this. We've done this. Sin angers God, and it, and it elicits that type of righteous anger against what's wicked, against what kind of flows from the devil and from his mantras and his theologies and his philosophies about uh, self-improvement and self-deification. And God's okay, but you don't really need him type theologies, which are the core of sin, uh, but they also elicit and bring forth things like murder and pride and anger and uh, sinful anger and things like that too. So, so lots of reasons why they're here, but if you read the prophets, you see that basically it's idolatry. It's the worship of the self. It's the inability to keep the Ten Commandments. They didn't keep the first, like the first one basically, right? Uh, is uh, they, they rejected against it and disbelieved in God and didn't put him first. And so they're in this predicament because of that. But now if you look at verse 3, so I don't know if you guys have read this before, or if, as, even as I was reading this, if you felt this. I felt this this week, reading this slowly, <laughs> kind of going back. Without much context here, if you just have verse 2, maybe, maybe a little bit of knowledge about your own sinful heart, and a little bit of knowledge about how much Israel fails cyclically over and over and over again. When you read verse 2 and it says, the Lord God was very angry with your fathers, and get to that, therefore, we can kind of recoil a bit, right? I don't know if you guys felt this or not, but kind of recoil and say, well, here we go, you know, ugh. therefore, because he's so angry, because they sinned, because he's angry at their sin, when we see that therefore, we might start to cringe a bit. But look what he says. It is a staggering, almost inexplicable contrast between verse 2 and verse 3. He says, therefore, because of the fact that he's angry against sin, or even flowing from it, he says, therefore, return to me. Therefore, come back. You know, why is it not, therefore, say to them, away from me forever? Why is that not here? Is that more logical? Because of your sin, because of your grandparents' sin, because of yours as well, because of my anger against them, because the holy and the sinful cannot be together and coexist. Therefore, and after Israel's repeated, as a microcosm of all of our experiences, so us too, repeatedly failed. You know, it's easy to look at this, I think, and, and think, is this the last straw? Is this the final therefore, where God erases it all and keeps people fully away from him forever? And the answer is, again, almost inexplicably, no. He says, return to me, and I will return for you, return to you, and for you. It's, and and there, he's talking about their grandparents and great-grandparents' sins, but they've got the same thing, right? We've got the same thing. Those types of sins don't just go away like airing dirty laundry. That's not how it works. If we have a healthy understanding of sin and know enough about how repeatedly every generation of Israelites fell spiritually like this, if we know our hearts, we might be inclined to think this was the beginning of the end, but instead God says, come home. Come home to me. The true return that God wants, again, this is, it's shouting this. It's wonderful how this book begins. Uh, it, it's right for God to be angry at sin, but he's also the most loving, merciful being in the universe. This is how these things come together. It's strange, but beautiful. The true return to God, the true return that he wants is not geographical, it's spiritual. As you return to the land, again, as we said before, as you're returning to the promised land, return to me. Which, by the way, don't you love that it's written this way, that Zechariah is speaking this, but he's speaking it from that kind of God standpoint. So it's not Zechariah saying, uh, God told me over there, we had a talk, and what he wants me to say is he, he wants you to come back. He's saying, tell them in, as though I'm speaking through you, return to me. So, so not return to God, though that's good. He says, he frames it this way, return to me, so they can almost hear the voice of God through Zechariah. I love that it's in that tense and person. But understand this again. This is one of the more important things we'll see in Zechariah these next 14 weeks, guys. So have this physical and spiritual relationship idea in mind. When they're coming back geographically, God says, 
like that, but more. I, I want your heart. I'm inviting you back as sinners, not as good people, because I love you. In fact, all of physical land stuff in the Old Testament, when this exile return, exile return, exile return pattern, and we saw this back in our Genesis series, if you were here for that, points to this one true gospel reality. The hope of a true spiritual return to our Lord, to our Creator. I mean, and somehow at this point, and this is still a question mark, if you're a, you know, a 6th century B.C. Jew and you're hearing this, it's great news, but it's also confusing. Uh, because at this point, it's inexplicable that God would be this patient. And he, he would promise judgment for not keeping his law, and yet he'd kind of go past it and not keep his own covenant. He promised to exile them if they didn't keep it, but yet he's bringing them back as sinners. So it's inexplicable, but obviously welcome. And so there's a tension there. But, but before we get to resolving that tension, you see how immediately applicable this is. This is who God is, and he doesn't change. When, when you guys sin or feel distant from God, when you wallow in shame, who is God to you in that moment? Uh, what, what you think about God, is, is, it means everything about you. In, in that moment especially, when you're distant, when you fail, when you have shame and guilt, when you worship yourself, when you just don't really care that much about him. Who is God in that moment to you? How about right now, in this very room, this morning as you walked in? Who is he to you? When you think of him, is he the one who, in spite of your sin, like he is here, in spite of your sin, asking you to come home to him? Or is he just kind of angry and just passively tolerant of you? Now, I can, I, I'm... I'll speak for myself, but I can almost guarantee we've, we've all had that, right? It's, it's the wrong view of God to view through his son, but even here before Christ comes, this looks ahead to this reality. He's speaking into exile and sin and saying, come home. He's not saying, figure it out in Babylon, and when you do, give me a call. He went to get them. He said, come home in spite of yourselves and your sin. Isn't it amazing? This, this is what we should think about. This type of invitation, this plea in the midst of sin, on the other side of it, amidst it, as we're doing it, this is how amazingly patient, even in his righteous anger against our sin, how beautifully complimentary he is with his patience, how slow to anger he is, and to execute judgment. That's how he is to us uh, through Christ in this new era. He speaks into the distance and the sin and says, come home. But, but again, therein lies the twist. And I want to keep going here because that's not enough to say that. It's not the whole story. There's better parts to it. And so the, the twist then is this, and I've been asking these questions, but as we get to this point, we could ask, well, how can God just look over sin, though? I thought he was just. You know, we would never say uh, to an injustice that we'd perceive in the world if God said, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Though, you know, we, we might, injustices that we care about, we'd say, but come on, we want to see that wrong righted, that injustice solved. And so it's the same with our, it, we don't like to think about that with our sin, of course, it's not as comfortable, but it's still true. God is just, he cannot just look over sin, but he seems to be here. Another question is, how exactly is he going to return us to himself? Why won't this just happen again? Why is God not keeping his own old a covenant here that he made with Israel, which was a promise to judge and exile and cast away people for not keeping moral law. He's not keeping it. He's breaking it. He's breaking his own rules. So what's up? And this is not the first time this occurs if you know the Old Testament. So there's this tension here of this covenant he set up and God doing something subversive to it and better than it to emphasize his grace and his love and the better thing he was going to do in the future. And that's the next thing I want to talk about then, the second piece, is uh, an anticipation of something even better. And we have hints of this, contrasts to it, but hints of it in this passage um, as well. But before we get to the better, let's look at what makes this sticky and just difficult. Um, and that is verse 6. Maybe you guys saw this as well as we read this. But, um, but he's talking again about 
this generation's past, their fathers, or their, their ancestors, their great-grandparents, and uses this phrase in verse 6, my words and my statutes, meaning my laws that I gave through Moses, uh, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So overtaking's not uh, a great idea. It's, that's, that's me- it's meant to be they overtook, they overpowered. They were too much, too much of a heavy burden. And verse 6 shows this. And what he's referring to, again, is Old Testament law, but also the promise of curses for not keeping the law. Back in Deuteronomy, earlier in the Old Testament, when God is establishing this type of covenant relationship with Israel, he says, all of these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. So this begs the question, right? At this point in the, in the biblical journey, again, especially if we're right here, try to think like a 6th century B.C. Jew, but also if you just don't know the Bible yet, that's fine. At this point, there's a tension. It begs the question, returning again to the land and to God is great, but we're students of history here, and some of us know the Bible And we know how painfully cyclical this is for Israel. We know our hearts, how prone to wander we are. So the question is, how will this not happen again? That's great he's bringing us back. He's done that a hundred times, though. And it it happened again. Sin occurred again. Exile occurred again. Judgment occurred again. The curses occurred again. It's like this, um, some uh, Old Testament theologian types talk about how the whole Old Testament Actually, especially Judges, if you know this book, it's a particular kind of subtitle to Judges, but I'll apply to the whole Testament. It's a downward spiral idea. It's like there's these little moments of God's grace bringing people back, but it's basically a spiral downwards, like we're circling the drain. The human race is circling the drain right now at this point, and it's pretty much it. It's the world through Israel, and the curses await. And so the question, how will this not happen again? That, that's... If we're reading the Bible, we have to ask that question. God covenanted this way. He made promises. The answer is not in this passage. It's hinted at, but it's not here, but elsewhere. Later, in a better place. And the answer is Jesus Christ and the new covenant or way of God relating to sinners. And there, are, there are hints of this in uh, Zechariah. But also contrast, in the New Testament, the gospel is not just a plea of come back to me. The gospel says you can't. So, and so much so that God had to come to us. So the gospel is not a plea, come back to God. The gospel is a declaration of the fact that God has returned to us in the form of his son. See how the former is good, but the latter is better? The latter is the gospel. The former doesn't necessarily go away. There's still an invitation to come. But the gospel is a declaration of God's son who's come into the world to save us, from, save us from our sins, to die for us. I mean, isn't that better? Or let me ask, what, what's better news? Uh, a husband saying, come home to his wife? Or a husband flying to where his wife is because he can't help but be near her again? The former's good, but the latter's much better right? Much better. The New Testament then, in, in that way, is better. The former is good in some ways in that it points to the latter, but the latter is a better version. We also get a whisper of this idea in Zechariah 1.1 when it says um, that the word of the Lord, this is something he says to all the prophets, came to the prophet Zechariah. This is something that happens every time God speaks, wants to speak through a person, And let me point this out. It never once says in the Old Testament about prophets that the prophet Zechariah, Hosea, Jonah, Amos found the word of the Lord. It never says Zechariah came to the word of the Lord, but the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. It might seem inconsequential, but it's absolutely not. It's one of the most important things we get. When God sends words, when he speaks, It's his initiation. It's his arrival. 
It's his desire to speak. You know, when it says in the New Testament about Jesus being the word of God, the ultimate word, do we come to that word or does that word come to us? John 1, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's good news. That God wants to come into the world to become like us, to die for us. That happened. So, like the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the true word, Jesus, in flesh, came to us. Do you see that connection? A whisper of how God returned to us versus just plead us to come back to him. And he came to establish a new covenant with us as well. One not based on words and statutes or law wrapped up with curses for not keeping them, but a new covenant based on grace. And one that will not overtake us. So John 1.17 says, just a few, few verses later, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is not Old Testament 2.0. This is brand new. Otherwise, it wouldn't be new. New covenant. Not like the old. He says in Jeremiah 31, another prophet. I will make a new covenant, he says, in the future. Not like the one I made with your fathers when they came up out of Egypt. That was the old one. It will be unlike it. Be different. It will pertain to grace. It will be on me to save, not on you. The curses will fall on my son. Not on you. The judgments will fall on my son for you. This is why he bore our sin and bore wrath and bore judgment. He bore separation from the Father for us. It was, it was classic substitution. But you see how the curses are removed from us and they're placed on him? It's new covenants, better. So Christ then comes gently. He lays down his life for us. This is the great how to how God will return people to himself. Even in the Old Testament, we see in Isaiah 44, 22, another prophet, I blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. How does return to God happen? Sins have to be removed. Transgressions have to be removed. Even the Old Testament saying this. A death has to occur. Like Hebrews 9 says about the new covenant, a death had to occur to put into motion the benefits to the beneficiaries of that covenant or will. A death had to occur. And it gloriously did through, through, through God's Son, which is to say through God himself. God died, he bled for us. That, that's the essence of the New Testament. And So when I hear then, back to Zechariah, when I hear God saying, what I hear him saying here in the relationship between these things is, and this is a major theme of Zechariah, you know, is basically this, enough exile, enough. I'm going to end the tired, hellish cycle of sin leading to separation from me. The times of prophecies and symbols and patterns is almost over. My son will bring it all to an end. He will return people to me once and for all. But make no mistake, it's through him that the cycle ends. If it's on us, the cycle will continue. We'll have good days, we'll feel good about ourselves, we'll be law keepers, and literally the next day, we won't be. And if we're in covenant with God through law based on condition, what hope do we have? Other than exile. And, and so, as we read these stories and in prophecies like this, we'll see this more in the series, we see ourselves in them, we need to read them in a New Testament anticipating way. Otherwise, again, what if we sin? How will God not judge us and send us into another exile or to hell? And this is the way a lot of Christians think sometimes. We forget the grace we've been given. We're thinking more like religionists. We're thinking more like, um, well, really every other religion besides Christianity. It is about returning to God on our own strength. It's about being covenanted with a God based on law. It makes Christians distinct. If you're a Christian, and if you're not even, what makes Christians different, we believe that what's between us and God now is blood. God's blood. That's what brings us back to him. He shed that 
so that we might not have to shed ours. He took a grave upon himself and the hell on the cross so that we wouldn't have to take a grave on ourselves and die and in hell ourselves, but we can get back to him. That's, that's the good news. Law will overtake you. Some of you are well aware of that. You're seasoned in that. You know that. Some of you don't. You feel pretty good about yourselves. Um, the Bible says God's words and statutes, the Ten Commandments, will overtake you. It will overrun you. It's way too much, way too much of a heavy yoke and a burden to bear. Israel couldn't do it. You know, do you think you can? You can't. I can't. Jesus' blood will lift you up and cover your shame and atone for your guilt and forgive your sins and wash you white as snow forever. And that's something the law never did. All that the law brought was exile. 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 Judgment. Curse separation, expectation of hell. What Christ's blood brought was the complete 180 opposite of that. So let me just read this, and to be very, very clear, from Deuteronomy 28. When Deuteronomy 28 says, these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you're destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord to keep his commandments and his statutes? Let me be very, very clear. I know some of you are new to the Bible, and so we want to not assume that you're privy to this. We want to teach this so you know this and are free in this. You are not under this anymore. In Christ, you are not under this. Do you believe that? You might believe it, but do you believe it? Do you really believe it? Functionally. Don't baptize that verse and New Testamentize it. Don't tweak it or redeem it and soften it and apply it. Don't Instagram it with a pretty picture of a field behind it or something with doves, thinking, oh, this is so great. Isn't that like wise? Don't do that. Don't rip it out of your Bible, but see, there's a part of a story in a passing covenant. It didn't work. So Jesus brought a new one that was different and better. This is the covenant he brought. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In Matthew 11, we read this morning, my yoke's actually easy, my burden's light. The laws is heavy, but Jesus' yoke is very, very light because it's not based on our effort and what we do. This on the bottom will never, ever overtake you. It will overtake your sin, but it will not overtake you. It will overtake the devil, but it will not overtake you. It will overtake and overrun and squash your hard hearts, but it will not overtake you. It's gracious invitation. Because of that, the new covenant, we can actually come back to God now, and the whole cycle's ended. No more expectation of hell. No more like, concern about, what if I sin? Because you will. But the promise of the New Testament is, even though you will, your relationship with God has never changed. He loves you so much he wanted to die for you on a cross in that manner among criminals in the most unjust way, hellish way possible that's ever been devised by man, crucifixion. God's grace will never overtake you. But don't go back to the law. It will. It will, it will crush you. It'll actually puff you up at first, making you feel pretty good about yourself and challenge the idea that you need Jesus for everything. It will challenge that idea. And then eventually it will entice you away from Christ, from the true fountain, the only thing that quenches our thirst, and it will destroy you. It will crush you. Our sin's too strong. That's, part, that's why the law was added, was so that it wouldn't be kept, so that people would, Israel and the world watching would want something different and better. It was, it was it meant, it wasn't, Jesus was not God's plan B. He was always plan A. Just the first covenant came in so that it might be surpassed. So that new, better thing would want, would want to be wanted. So in conclusion then, a few things. Um, first, I want to invite you guys, as we start this series together, 
Um, if you haven't already, I put this on the city too, but read Zechariah, the whole thing. I encourage you to do that this week. It's 14 chapters, not too long. It's weird. It's trippy. Uh, and there'll be a lot of questions, but um, read it. And read it with a wide-angle Jesus lens, though. And ask yourself some of those questions we talked about before, but especially, where is the New Testament here? How is it being anticipated and longed for? Where is these direct prophecies, arrow-pointing prophecies of Christ, but also this kind of fading shadow principle of um, a new and better returns coming? All these latter returns are good, but, or former returns, but this latter return, how is that through Christ? How is that being anticipated? And, and all the other things we, we talked about. But second, most important is believe in Christ. Uh, the, the cross is the, um, the only place that resolves this tension between God's anger over sin He's very angry with us over sin. And his concern for our well-being, his love for us, and his desire to return us to himself. That's the tension we live in, guys. We, we, we can't, the Bible says both. He's rightfully angry against sin, yet he has deep, deep love. The cross is the only place those things are, are resolved. That's an irresolvable tension without the cross, where God can can pour out wrath and judgment for our sin, but also demonstrate love by letting us be kind of bypassed from it and passed over. So we look to the, the men on the cross and, and believe. And remember, here is plea and his promise. Return to God. Actually, better yet, believe the returns already occurred through Jesus and, and hear his voice in that. And please do. In fact, I know not a lot of you are note takers. Some of you are, and that's great. But this is, this is like a, a put-down-your-pencil kind of moment. Your pencil. Do pencils still exist? I don't know if they do. Probably do. But put down your pencils, figuratively or literally. And you've got to hear God's voice here. This is not just, oh, yeah, now I know what Zechariah is. This, is. this is what God is saying to us as a church today. He wants us to hear this because a lot of us aren't returning to him. And, and we have this, we're sitting on a billion-dollar lottery ticket. We're not cashing it in. We have this way back that's been paved by blood and, he, and he's shown us love and we're not taking it. We're more comfortable with just being law keepers. And, and that's, I'm saying this about myself, all of us are, are, that's the human issue, you know, the Christian issue. Um, hear God's voice here. Hear his plea. Come back. Come back to God, you guys. Come back today. Take communion as we close our service. Um, and then here is promise, though. His plea is good. His promise is great. I will return to you. That's the promise. Plea, come back. Sinners, weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. The promise is I will return, because you'll never be perfect that, perfect there. I will return to you. I'll become like you. I'll come into the world and not just be among you, dwell among you, but I'll die as one of you for you so that you can actually be truly in covenant with God once and forever, or once and for all, and never have to question it or worry about it being reneged or taken back. And then finally, tell this, uh, tell this story with your actions. I won't say a lot about this today. We'll talk about this more in coming weeks. Um, but if you're moved by God returning to you, if you're moved by that, by his love, if you're moved by him being slow to anger, believe in that, but then kind of pay that forward, express that, tell that story to those around you. I mean, if you're not good at, this is a weird way to say it, but not being angry, <laughs> double negative. Uh, if, you're, if you're an angry person, the, the only place that anger kind of is quelled is at the cross. When we, and when we look at the cross and see God was patient with me there, uh, when, that, when that stirs in our soul, that's the only way we can have the hope of, of being non-angry and slow to anger. And if, we, if we're not loving, the only place is the cross when we're moved by God's love, you know. And, um, and, 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 and tell, his, tell this story by returning well to your families after work trips. And you know, I, was thinking, I was thinking this last week of, um, I, I know that, well, in the city this is especially true, but with houses everywhere and just dense yards and less fences, but... Um, People I know in our neighborhood, they, they watch Aletha and I love our kids in our front yard. And um, like when my kids walk home from the bus stop themselves, you know, I could, I could um, wait there with a smile 
that's good, uh, as they come around the corner, or I could run to them as my neighbors are watching. As they know I'm a Christian, um, a lot of them do, that they could see an instance of the gospel there, right? An instance of grace. When you return well, uh, that little joy, little bit of joy you get, seeing loved ones again, friends, family, kids, whatever, um, that's like the gospel. A little bit of happiness, that's what God wants, but on a much greater level, you know, and we can return well, we can, we can invite returners well, we can actually be better than that, but we can pursue people um, who are distant from us and reconcile and love, and that, that I think is physically kind of what the gospel's all about, and so we can um, first believe that's main, but then second, we can tell that story, and I, and I, I encourage you guys onto this. Zechariah's not saying this. This is a secondary issue. Zechariah's just saying return to God. You want the imperative, the command? All it says for us to do is return to God. That's it, you know? So the secondary issue is just that secondary, but it flows from that first primary one of demonstrate the fact that God has returned to you through his son when you weren't deserving it and when you were still sinning against him, when you weren't even wanting him, he came to your rescue to die for you. And, you know, that, when that really moves in the heart, all of a sudden our character changes. And, uh, but I'll save more on that for later weeks. Uh, for now, guys, um, be, be in prayer for us these next few weeks, just as a, as a church, as we learn together and hear from God in this capacity. Read the book with these types of themes in mind, and it won't be as, as trippy as it otherwise would, but it'll still be trippy. So let me pray for us. God, thanks uh, for your grace in this book, wonderful book uh, about Jesus. Uh, the, the New Testament says Zechariah is about Jesus repeatedly. The early church says Zechariah is about Jesus repeatedly, thematically and symbolically and directly and in a fading shadow kind of way. It is always about you, God. So help us to see you in this book, whether it's in a contrasting with the Old Covenant kind of way or in a New Testament anticipating kind of way. Help us to have the wisdom to know which. Help us to have the wisdom to uh, blow at the fog a bit and the haze of a very confusing, symbolic, apocalyptic book. And just to basically see how you, through Zechariah, are telling Israel and the world, Jesus is coming. Thank you for coming to us when we could not get to you, Father. Um, we pray this in your name. Amen.